right back. If you walked by Inman Square on Sunday, October 1st, you would have caught 20 demonstrators chanting and marching in protest. If you followed them, you would have seen them stop across the street from a yard party hosted by the Cambridge Citizens Coalition, the CCC. Stand up, fight back! The reason? The CCC has endorsed two candidates for Cambridge City Council who've promoted transphobic and racist content on social media. The protesters say it's unacceptable. The two city council candidates under fire, Robert Winters and Carrie E. Pascarello, deny all allegations of racism and transphobia. Today on News Talk, two of our reporters join us to break down the protest, the confrontations, and what it all means for the city council race this fall. From Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. I'm Frank Joe. Hi, I'm Muskan Arshad, and I'm a Cambridge elections reporter for The Crimson. Hi, my name is Julian J. Giordano, and I'm the other Cambridge elections reporter. Thank you so much, Julian and Muskan, for joining us. I'm curious if you could lay out for us what you would have seen on the day of the protest. Protesters gathered at Inman Square and then walked over to the house of a community member who's long been involved in electoral politics, hosting events for candidates like Elizabeth Warren, but who on this particular Sunday was hosting a candidate party for the CCC, the Cambridge Citizens Coalition, which is a group of Cambridge citizens run by Harvard professor Suzanne Lier that are involved in elections and are actually the most well-funded political action committee in the city. Now, they endorsed a group of 11 candidates for the city council election. Two of those candidates were Robert Winters and Carrie E. Pascorello. So the protesters, who were organized by the Boston Democratic Socialists of America, gathered at Inman Square and then walked over to Sarah Mae Berman's house where a party was being hosted for the endorsed candidates. It's important to note that Sarah Mae Berman is not a member of the CCC, but a community member who has also hosted lots of other similar political forums in her yard. So the partygoers are gathered in Berman's yard, and across the street, the protesters have gathered. I'm curious, what happens then? What is each side saying? So while they were walking and while standing across from the yard, there was a lot of chants from the protesters. Once they got to the street across the yard itself, there were confrontations that took place between them and some of the people attending the party, including one that took place between Dan Totten, who is a candidate for city council who was with the protesters at the time, and Sarah Mae Berman, one in which she called what was happening with the tweets alternative facts and Dan Totten asking if she supported hate. Why won't you reject hate, Sarah? Pardon me? Why won't you reject hate? Why are you supporting candidates that have endorsed what you're saying? One of the candidates you're supporting retweeted a neo-Nazi. How, how can you live with that? You don't think neo-Aryan is problematic? <laughs> what I'm saying is I am sensitive to issues of um, racist and uh, Islamophobic and uh, gender bias. I am sensitive to those issues, and I don't agree that, that these people uh, are what you say they are. Disavow them. Disavow that. If you can't read that, that's Trumpian. That's a fact. If you're not accepting what they wrote at face value, that's on you, not on anyone else. I don't think they wrote this. Who wrote it? You.
That was just one of the confrontations that took place. There were others where a woman named Nicola Williams tried to enter the party and was derided by the protesters. They said, shame on you, Nicola, and also started singing, which side are you on as she entered the party? There was another confrontation that took place when candidate Federico Muchnik came outside and he said waliku salam to the protesters as they asked him what his opinion were on the tweet. So I'm curious then if you could give us a sense of how long this protest lasted and how long these confrontations were going on for. So the event at Sarah Mae Berman's house was supposed to last from around 4.35 to 6.30, 7 o'clock. And it was mainly an opportunity for candidates to get to mingle with attendees. There were around 40 people, both members of the CCC and Canterburyans, just attending the event and hoping to speak to candidates and hear their platforms. So for the first hour and a half or two hours of that party, they could only hear and speak to the candidates over the sounds of protesters on the street yelling slogans and chants. I've been on the council 10 years. I was uh, asked to go to opera because I had a loud, deep voice. The deep voice is gone, but uh, the strength of the voice is there. It's also worth noting that there were two police officers on the scene standing on the street and making sure that traffic wasn't being blocked by the protesters. And after about an hour and a half, two hours, the protesters began to leave at the end of the event. Thank you so much for that context. So let's circle back to the heart of the conflict, the tweets themselves. What are the tweets that Pascarello and Winters have written, liked and interacted with? There were a couple tweets that were highlighted on Twitter. Some of them included Winter's writing, keep the chains on the protesters. They'll go well with the leg irons, hashtag stupid lives matter. And some of the other tweets by Pascarello that she had liked included a statement that said, we've been told that teachers talking to kids about sex, parentheses, fantasies, comma, orientation, doesn't lead to grooming. Those were some of the tweets that were highlighted by what was going around on social media at the time. What have Pascarello and Winter's response to these allegations been? For Pascarella's response, she denied any allegation of being transphobic or racist, and she also said that her political opponents were perpetuating a false narrative against her campaign. Winters, on the other hand, published a blog post on Monday where he denied any allegations that he was racist, transphobic, or Islamophobic, but he said he stood by his social media posts and said that it was part of his sense of humor. He also said, like Pascarello, that he was a victim of a full-fledged campaign of harassment and intimidation. A lot of this started when candidates were gathered at a candidate forum for city residents to be able to ask questions and probe the candidates on what they have to say. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about just what happened at the candidate forum to have sparked the protests that followed. Yeah, so there was a candidate forum held by the Harvard's Graduate Student Union at Emerson Hall a couple weeks ago. And there was an unplanned question by a graduate student from Tufts named Anshul Manuja, who asked candidate Robert Winters about his Twitter likes, which included a transphobic tweet. He was slow to respond and said that he might have liked something that could have been funny. He said specifically, that is certainly possible, but I don't remember doing anything particularly controversial to that regard. Manuja then would say that it wasn't just one tweet, and he said, I don't agree with that. And that was the exchange that took place between them at the candidate forum. So I'm curious then, in the hours and days following the candidate forum, how did city residents and social media respond? 
Following the forum, multiple candidates came out on Twitter and posted screenshots that they had found of tweets liked by or retweeted by Robert Winters in the past couple of years. These tweets were reposting and liking content that they deemed transphobic, some of it racist, and some of it Islamophobic. About half a dozen candidates in the race reposted this in the coming days, and they also started reposting material they found about another candidate, Carrie E. Pasquarello. They found content that she had written on Twitter and also reposted that they also deemed racist and transphobic. As of that evening, half a dozen candidates had made posts condemning Winters and Pasquarello's tweets and transphobia more generally. Those candidates were, were Dan Totten, Aya Alzubi, Aisha Wilson, Vernon Walker, Jeevan Sabrina Wheeler, Burhan Azim, and Mark McGovern. All this is happening as the race for city council is still ongoing. Two dozen candidates are still in the running. I'm curious if you could zoom out for us and sort of give us a broader update on the Cambridge elections. Do these allegations and protests factor into the larger scheme of the race? And if so, how? We're now about a month out from elections for city council with 24 candidates in the race and only nine at-large seats available for them. It's going to be quite competitive. And so these allegations and the responses we're seeing will definitely have an impact on how people turn out to vote. What we're also seeing, and what we also saw with the protesters at the event, is that not only are their impressions of Winters and Pasquarello being affected by these tweets, but also their impressions of other candidates who are either choosing to defend or oppose them. And we see this very much with the slates of candidates that different political groups have endorsed. So as voters look for who they're going to be supporting in these elections, whether candidates have come out against or in support of Winters and Pascarello will definitely be something that some voters are looking to see. Thank you so much, Julian Muscon, for keeping us posted on the Cambridge City elections and developments today. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. It's hard to navigate Harvard's email lists, bulletin boards, even bathroom stalls without encountering flyers for mental health support resources on campus. But that doesn't necessarily mean all students feel supported. Today on News Talk and on World Mental Health Day, we talked to two of our reporters to figure out what the school offers and why students aren't necessarily aware of it. My name is Nia Elorakwe, and I cover college administration for the Harvard Crimson. My name is Jay Sellers-Hill. I also cover college administration for the Harvard Crimson which is a beat about the students who attend Harvard College and the adults who attempt to wrangle them. Thank you so much, Nia and Sellers, for joining us. So I wonder if you could start by giving us a little bit of a sense of Harvard's interactions and history with mental health. What have been the problems that the college has faced in the past? I think this thread really begins in 2004, at least for the Crimson, where they published a big piece involving an independent survey that they had done on students at the college and found that a really staggering percentage of them were struggling with conditions like anxiety and depression, and that they were also unable to receive timely and complete mental health care on campus. And that kicked off a conversation that we've really revisited almost year after year about what is the status of our students' mental health, what's their relationship to the school, what's available, and and what could be done to make that better. So if we fast forward then to the years following that initial 2004 reporting, what was the trajectory of uh, mental health issues on campus, and where are we now? We do have some surveys that have been conducted by the university itself on the undergraduate population, and those numbers have been a bit concerning. From 2014 to 2018, the percentage of Harvard undergraduates who reported that they have or think they may have depression jumped from 22% to 31%. And it was a similar increase for anxiety disorders, where student responses increased from 19% to 30%. So we're looking at about a third of the student population reporting struggling with these conditions. What's 
a little bit more dire is that those numbers actually, depending on where you look, place Harvard uh, below the median for other college campuses around the United States. So despite this being a really dire situation here on our campus, it's quite possible that Harvard students are experiencing better mental health than the average college student elsewhere in the United States. And that's not to say that we're doing well. I think it speaks to the significance of this issue all over the United States for college students. The university has offered and been developing resources to help students address their mental health needs and seek professionals um, who can offer them help. But on the ground, on campus, your average student isn't necessarily cued in to all the resources that are available. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what students are saying and why that might be the case. One factor at play is a general lack of what the university itself actually called a roadmap. So in 2020, the university commissioned a task force to evaluate the mental health resources available to students on campus. And they found that there was a general lack of a centralized place that students could go to see all of the resources available to them and how to access them, how they might be uh, directed through those systems. That's one thing that maybe potentially students are missing. So I'm curious then if we have any indication of why these numbers are ticking upwards in the first place. What's the root of the problem? So the simple answer is, I don't think we know. A few students we talked to mentioned ideas of Harvard maybe being a particularly competitive place, people experiencing imposter syndrome, people having a tough time balancing academic life with personal life. In general, I don't think we have a clear answer as to why mental health conditions are worsening at college campuses around the United States. We spoke to Stephen Hyman, who's a biology professor here at Harvard, used to be the university provost and also former director of the National Institute of Mental Health. And he basically said the same thing. There's a lot of things you could come up with to explain this trend. Maybe people are increasingly worried about the job market. Maybe it's students worry about translating their school experience to professional success. Maybe people are worried about competitive extracurriculars. But in general, I don't think that any of those are perfectly suited to the trend that we're observing, which is year-over-year worsening mental health on college campuses. There's obviously some sort of underlying cause, but it has been too complex to pick up in simple surveys. Although some of the students that we talked to on campus did mention a difficulty balancing personal relationships with academics, a feeling of loneliness... And these are also factors that the university has identified as priorities to address. So their task force on mental health that they convened in 2020 also made recommendations about making the extracurricular application process at Harvard less competitive, at evaluating how students were feeling connected to their peers if maybe people's relationships were suffering. So there have been a lot of ideas thrown out, but it would not be accurate to say that there's some sort of smoking gun. So what has the university done in terms of resources and programs to help address this problem? As far as mental health resources on campus go, the biggest one is probably CAMS, which stands for Counseling and Mental Health Service on Campus. And they offer group therapy, individual counseling, among other resources for students. In addition to other university resources, such as the chaplains, which provide more spiritual guidance, religious guidance, There are also a variety of peer support groups where students have been trained to support other students, whether that's by asking leading questions, by just lending a listening ear, by being able to relate to them. And some of these cater to specific issues that students might be facing or certain communities. One such group is Indigo, which is specifically for students from intersectional backgrounds. 
There's another resource called ECHO, which is for students struggling with issues of disordered eating, exercise, body image. And then there's also groups like Room 13, which is a place where students can pop in at really any hour of the night. I think it runs from the afternoon to the very early morning. People pop in at 5 a.m. and have another student there to listen to them. And students that we talked to said that this was more than just a supplement for CAMS appointments being full. A lot of people told us that they found them quite helpful, different than talking to a professional counselor. If you're going to talk to a counselor about your experience in an obscure club at Harvard, they're going to be able to support you, but they might not be able to relate to you. And we heard from more than one student that they liked peer counseling, not because they were getting super advanced cognitive behavioral therapy, but because they were talking to a student who fundamentally was sharing an experience with them and could relate to them. So it sounds like then that there's a wealth of on-campus resources, whether that be through CAMS or through peer counseling groups, for students who are facing mental health issues to seek out help. What is the problem then? Why are these numbers still ticking upwards? And what's the perception of students on the ground? I think there's a couple issues. For one, there's a little bit of an institutional knowledge that there aren't mental health resources on campus that I think is hard to shake for a lot of students. And then there isn't really a consolidated place to find all of these resources at once. And I think that a lot of times students hear about all of these mental health resources their freshman year, and by the time they're juniors and maybe they're struggling, they don't have all of those resources in their back pocket. There's also a reality for some students, which is that a wealth of resources doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually meeting the needs of the students that they're trying to serve. Despite CAMS technically having therapists available for students to meet with, in 2022, as students were coming back to campus after the pandemic, there had been some staffing shortages. Wait times to meet with a therapist for a non-emergency were as high as six weeks. So you'd have to wait almost half a semester to meet with a therapist. And at that point, your problems have probably changed really fundamentally. Although there are a lot of resources that students can consult, if students are looking to build a relationship with a therapist that they can meet with regularly, CAMS at times has not been able to meet that need. The reason we're covering this story right now is because there have been some changes and that, in fact, uh, some of these resources may be able to shake some of their long-held impressions. I'm curious, what programs or initiatives has the university tried to adopt to try to shake these institutional impressions among students? CAMS is definitely working on making improvements. In August of 2021, they rolled out a 24-hour mental health hotline called CAMS Cares. In October 2022, they launched a collaboration with a Texas-based telehealth provider to help connect students with teletherapy appointments. Current wait times to get in touch with a therapist via teletherapy are two to five days. So I'm curious then, for the students that you've been able to speak to, have these resources been helpful? And have they seen an improvement in the services and resources accessible to students on campus? This month marks one year since the beginning of the Timely Care Partnership. So it is still a little bit early to gauge how students are interacting with this new resource. The students that we did talk to have largely positive reviews. They say that there is a wider variety of providers to choose from. So you can choose one that suits your needs better. They said that they were matched relatively quickly. And if it didn't work out with a given therapist, it was quite easy for them to switch. Yes, there are still hiccups. It's still the United States mental health care system. There are still going to be hiccups. There are still going to be difficulties finding providers. But largely, it's received positive reviews from the students that we spoke to. We know that in the first year that it's been out, 
about 12.7% of undergraduates at Harvard have registered with the site. That doesn't mean that they used it, but we know that there have been over 6,000 unique visits. So students are making use of this resource. And only time will tell if those positive experiences are going to change the way that students on campus think about what opportunities are available for them to receive help. One additional piece of the puzzle here is that the university has a number of recommendations that it can make to the student who has indicated that they're suffering from issues of mental health. I'm curious how that factors into the calculus for a student of whether or not they choose to seek out resources and how they choose to approach this entire process. The fear of being placed on mandatory leave is definitely a reason why some students might not feel comfortable speaking to their CAMS therapist or might delay seeking help when they really need it. This is an issue that the school themselves are aware of. Their evaluation of mental health resources that they did in 2020 makes specific mention of this effect, that students are wary of school resources because they're worried that there's some kind of backdoor, that Harvard's going to find out that they're in particularly bad shape and they're going to have to leave campus, they're going to have to leave their friends, and they're going to have to take time off um, that they don't necessarily feel will be good for them. So the school has made strides to improve its mental health offerings on campus, whether that be in making it uh, more timely or offering students more conduits to seek out care. As we mentioned before, issues persist. Students feeling hesitant to seek out this care is still very much a reality. I'm curious, what are the next steps that we can look to or that the school can look to as it seeks to improve its mental health offerings on campus? There are a few things coming from different sources. The university itself has set some priorities. Those include, just on a basic level, understanding better what students are going through. They've talked about doing focus groups, student interviews, looking at how class syllabi can be more inclusive for people, how it can be more clear about the resources that they can seek if they're having a tough time with class, if they're having a tough time balancing it. They've also proposed a better roadmap for students, a better visual representation of what's available for them, where it's available, when it's available, what the costs associated are. On the student side, we heard about students who wanted more transparency in the leave policy, who wanted to actually reform the leave policy, as has recently been done at Yale, where a string of student suicides prompted student outcry, and they have recently reformed their leave policies, changes that Harvard has not made yet. There's been a discussion of how stigma can be reduced, about how check-ins can be increased, about how students can have more opportunities throughout their semester to talk with someone, to vent to people, for someone to check in on them and make sure that they're not headed toward a really bad place. In terms of the student perception of what's available to them and the quality of those resources, it might be a situation where years just have to go by. Students have to give each other positive reviews and positive referrals to CAMS. And that might be a situation of waiting a few years and coming back and reevaluating. Thank you so much, Sellers and Nia, for joining us to talk through mental health opportunities and resources on campus and student attitudes towards them. Thank you. Thank you. News Talk is hosted by Frank S. Joe. This episode was produced by Gina H. Cho, Lorenzo Z. Ruiz, Sedina A. Aquayi, Melanie Sanchez, and Frank S. Joe. Our multimedia chairs are Julian J. Giordano and Joey Huang. Our managing editor is Brandon L. Kingdollar. Our president is Kara J. Chang. Music in this episode comes from freesound.org. From 14 Plimpton Street, this is News Talk.